Now we continue with a scripture reading, a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning with verse 43. Hear now these words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this week, we watched as our final movie in this year's Faith at the Movies sermon series, we watched the movie Encanto. Now, Encanto, because of the, the pandemic, had a, a fairly short run in the theaters. Even so, it has become something of a cultural phenomenon. I know families with children who have basically been running this movie on a loop for weeks now, watching it over and over and over and over and over again. I know grown adults without any children in the household at all who have watched this movie five or six or seven or a dozen times. Right now, as we speak, the soundtrack of the movie Encanto is the number one album in America. There are two songs from the movie that are in the top 10 in the Billboard Hot 100, including one that is hovering just at, at number two, We Don't Talk About Bruno. And I can't remember the last time a movie sparked so many sermons and think pieces and blog posts. This movie is, is nothing less than a certified cultural phenomenon, in part because of the music and in part because of the sensitive way that it portrays Colombian culture and in part, probably most of all, because this movie tells a compelling story. So in the movie Encanto, we meet this family. We meet the Madrigal family. And the Madrigal family, as we meet them at the beginning of the movie, we discover that they are this, this joyful family who have this painful past. And we learn some of the backstory of this family. We learn that 50 years before the events that take place in, in the movie, this family experienced this horrible tragedy. This young father and this young mother and their three small children were forced to flee from their home by some kind of violence. Now, this kind of experience has been all too common in the South American nation of Colombia through the years. The, the violence in Colombia goes all the way back to those days when the Spanish conquistadors committed genocide against the native peoples who lived in that part of the world. And then after the genocide from the conquistadors upon the native peoples in that part of the world, there was a war of independence. And after the war of independence, there were no fewer than nine civil wars 
And then in the 20th century, the nation was torn apart by violence as, as fascist militias faced off against communist militias. And the violence was intensified when Colombia became home to some of the world's most brutal and ruthless drug lords. And so this experience of being driven from their home by some sort of violence is an experience that's been shared by millions of Colombians through the years. And so as the movie opens, we see this young family fleeing, fleeing from some sort of violence being pursued by violent people. And then two things happen that are important to the plot of the movie. First, there's a tragedy. This young father gives his life in order to protect his family. And even as he is taking his final breath, a miracle takes place. This young mother's candle begins to burn with a supernatural light. And that supernatural light drives back the people who are pursuing them. It creates a, a place of safety and protection. And with Within that place of safety and protection, the magic of this candle creates for this young family a home, a, a living home, a house that provides everything that they could need. And as the years go by and as the family grows, they discover that this magical house keeps providing for them. It gives each member of the family some sort of a supernatural gift that they can use to serve one another and to serve their neighbors in the small village that springs up around this home. And so as the movie begins, we find this family. Now this young mother has become a grandmother. She's now the abuela of the family. She has all of these children and grandchildren and all of these children and grandchildren have these, these magical gifts that they've been given by the house. There's, there's the granddaughter Louisa who has superhuman strength and there's the granddaughter Mirabelle who is able to make flowers, beautiful flowers, grow up, rise up out of the ground everywhere she grows, goes. There's, there's Bruno who has the, the power to see glimpses and visions of the future. As the movie opens, we see that the Madrigal family are this, this joyful family who have this painful past. And there's lots of singing and there's lots of dancing. And we think, boy, I would love to live in that house. I would love to be the Madrigal's neighbors. What a neat place that would be. What a neat family that would be to be a part of. But then, as the movie continues, we begin to discover that all is not well in the Madrigal family. We begin to discover that the pain of this family is not just in the past. There is also bubbling just beneath that joyful surface. There is also an undercurrent of pain and anxiety and worry and fear and pressure. The abuela, the grandmother of the family, worries that the candle is dying out. And she worries that this magical house is beginning to crack and crumble. And she worries that all of their supernatural gifts are beginning to fade. And because she is so anxious and worried, she starts putting all of this pressure on all of the members of her family to live up to her expectations, to always be perfect, to use their gifts as, as well to the utmost that these gifts can possibly be used. And all of the members of the family, we discover, are beginning to buckle and struggle under the weight of the expectations that their grandmother and that they are putting upon themselves. And so Louisa, the granddaughter who has this superhuman strength, she is beginning to struggle under the weight of always having to be strong for everybody else. She, she confesses that sometimes she feels like she has to carry everyone, that she has to rescue everyone, that she can never be weak, that she can never lean on anyone, that she can never take a moment off or something terrible is going to happen to the family. 
And Isabella, the, the granddaughter who causes beautiful flowers to spring up everywhere she goes, she, she confesses that she's getting tired of making beautiful flowers, that sometimes she doesn't feel like making beautiful flowers. Sometimes she wants to make a cactus spring up out of the ground. Sometimes she wants to make something lumpy and awkward and spiky grow up out of the ground. And she's getting tired of everybody's expectation that she'll just always constantly be making flowers everywhere she goes. And then there's Bruno. Let's talk about Bruno. <laughs> Bruno very quickly discovers that people in his family don't always want to hear about his visions and his glimpses of the future. People only want to hear about his visions. They only want to hear what Bruno sees with his gift, if what he sees is happy, if what he sees is convenient, if what he sees is comfortable. They don't want to hear hard and uncomfortable things. They don't want to hear the whole truth of what Bruno sees with his gift. And it gets to the point where Bruno is so struggling under the strain, under the burden of having to tell everybody all the time what they want to hear instead of the truth, the whole truth as he can see it, that finally Bruno decides he just can't be part of this family anymore and he hides he flees he goes into exile rather than constantly tell everybody exactly what they want to hear and the family tries to forget that he was ever there in the first place they say we don't talk about bruno and so this is the Madrigal family. They are this, on the surface, this joyful family, always singing, always dancing, always celebrating everybody's gifts. But just beneath the surface, there is this painful pressure and there is the crushing weight of these unrealistic, these impossible expectations. And as I was watching this movie for the first time and as I was already humming along to the songs in the movie, I started thinking what a powerful picture this is of what can happen in the church when the church goes terribly wrong. Wrong. The church is meant to be a, a joyful place. And the church is meant to be a place of, of grace, a place where we believe that everybody has a gift to give and that the world needs every one of those gifts, a place where people can be celebrated, where they can express the full creativity that God has placed within them. But sometimes, Sometimes church can go terribly wrong. Sometimes church can become rather than a place of grace and a place where people's gifts are celebrated. Sometimes church can be a place of, of painful pressure and unrealistic expectations. In my years of ministry, I've met a lot of people in the church who remind me of this granddaughter, Louisa, the one who has the, the superhuman strength. I have met so many people in my years as a pastor who feel like they always have to be strong for everybody around them. People who feel like they have a place in the church just so long as they can hold everything together. But as soon as they stop being able to hold everything together, as soon as they start to get tired, when they experience a mental health break, when they, when they experience depression, when they experience sadness, when they need to take a break, when they need to lean on somebody else for a change, suddenly they begin to feel that pressure to be strong again, that pressure to pray harder, that pressure to have more faith. People say to them, if you just had more faith, then you wouldn't be depressed. If you just had more faith, then you'd be able to keep on going. If you just had more faith, then you would be able to hold your life together better than you are right now. I have met so many Louisas in the church who are struggling, struggling under the expectation that we will always be strong and that we will always be able to hold everything together. 
And in my years as a pastor, I've met a lot of people who remind me of this granddaughter, Isabella, the one who's always making these beautiful flowers appear everywhere she goes. So many people have discovered that it's easy to fit in. It's easy to feel like you're embraced as a part of the church as long as you keep everything beautiful and frothy and happy and light. As long as you walk into church with a smile on your face, people will wrap their arms around you and they will love you. But as soon as you start to go to awkward places, as soon as you want to talk about lumpy or spiky or uncomfortable things, suddenly you feel the pressure to make everything, everything frothy and light and beautiful again. When you start to ask hard questions about the Christian faith or about what's happening inside of the church, when you begin to question your sexuality or your gender identity, when you go through a life event like a divorce and suddenly you don't feel like smiling and suddenly you don't just have beautiful things to share with your church family, suddenly you feel that pressure to put that smile back on and to go back to the places where everything is easy and just on the surface. And then there's Bruno. I know so many pastors right now who relate so powerfully to this character, Bruno. You know, the last few months, my news feed on social media has been filled with stories about how so many pastors right now are joining this cultural phenomenon called the Great Resignation. I don't know if you know this, but pastors are leaving the ministry in droves right now. And most of the pastors who are leaving the ministry right now are giving exactly the same reason for walking out the door. They're saying it just get to be too hard to keep everybody happy in a moment when anything you say and anything you do is bound to make somebody angry. And so many pastors, rather than, uh, than, than get up into the pulpit week after week or to go to meetings week after week and, and face that pressure to tell everybody exactly what they want to hear, have just decided that it's easier to go into hiding, to go into exile, to walk away. Churches are meant to be joyful places. They're meant to be places of grace where everyone's gift is celebrated. But when church goes wrong, sometimes churches can become places of painful pressure and unrealistic expectations. And it doesn't help that some of that pressure seems to be coming directly from Jesus. In this morning's gospel reading, Jesus speaks some of the most terrifying and intimidating words in all of the gospel. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's right there in Matthew chapter 5, right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus one day looks out at the crowds of people who are gathered to listen to him preach, and he gives those people a commandment. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What do you feel when you hear those words? Do you feel a weight beginning to settle on your shoulders? Do you feel a tightness in your stomach? Even then, even when Jesus said those words for the very first time, people looked at each other and said, how on earth can he command us to do that? Doesn't he know that this is an unrealistic expectation that nobody will ever be able to live up to the commandment that Jesus just gave us? For 2,000 years now, people have been trying to figure out why Jesus would command us to do something that is so obviously impossible. Why? Why would Jesus place that burden on our shoulders? What did Jesus mean when he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Now, some people get all philosophical and theological about those words. 
There are some people who listen to this commandment of Jesus and they say, well, yes, this commandment is impossible. Nobody can ever fulfill this commandment that Jesus has given us. And that's exactly the point. They say, Jesus wants us to try to be perfect so we will discover that we cannot be perfect, not on our own willpower, not on our own strength. Jesus wants us to fail so that we will realize our human limitations and when we fail, instead of relying on our own strength and our own will, we will instead cry out for God's forgiveness and we will rely on the grace and the power and the strength and the mercy of God. Now there's a a, a theological respectability to the answer. I gotta tell you, I never liked it very much. I never liked the idea of Jesus setting people up to fail. I never liked the idea that Jesus would command us to do something that Jesus knew we wouldn't be able to do, even if the intent was to drive us into the arms of God. I never liked that answer very much. And then there are some people who get all scholarly about these words and they dig into the original languages of the Bible and they say, well, if you read what Jesus actually says, he doesn't say be perfect because Jesus wasn't speaking English, he was speaking Greek. And so in the original Greek language, what Jesus actually says is something more like be complete or be whole or be mature as our Father in heaven is complete and whole and mature. I kind of like that. I like that better than the other answer. If Jesus says be complete or be whole, that sounds more like a blessing than like an impossible commandment. Be complete, be whole, be mature. My favorite way of understanding these words, though, has always been the Methodist way of understanding these words. So hundreds of years ago, John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, the brother of the guy who wrote all the hymns, John Wesley was reading the Sermon on the Mount and he noticed something. He noticed that Jesus doesn't say, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What Jesus actually says is, be perfect therefore as your Father in heaven is perfect. And John Wesley said that word, therefore, is a really important word. Therefore means that this commandment is coming at the end of something that Jesus has just explained, something that Jesus has just said. And if we want to understand this commandment, we need to go back a step and understand what it was that Jesus was talking about right before he gave that commandment. And if we back up a step and if we look at what Jesus is talking about right before he says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, what do we find Jesus talking about? talking about what he's always talking about. Jesus is talking about the great and abundant love of God. Just before Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus says, listen, everybody, don't just go around loving the people who love you and hating the people who hate you. He says, anybody can do that. Even the most morally deficient people in the world know how to love the people who love them and hate the people who hate them. If you want a higher love, if you want a godly love, Jesus says, then here is what you do. Have within you the kind of love that my Father in heaven has. My Father in heaven makes the sun to shine on the good and on the evil alike. And my Father in heaven makes the rain fall upon the righteous and upon the wicked alike. Be perfect, therefore as my Father in heaven is perfect. John Wesley and the Methodists, we say this is what Jesus means when he says, be perfect. Jesus is not commanding us to never make mistakes. He's not commanding us to always be strong and have our lives together. 
He's not commanding us to always be smiling and make everything beautiful and easy for people. He's not commanding us to always tell people what they want to hear and keep everybody happy. What Jesus is commanding us when he says, be perfect, therefore, as my Father in heaven is perfect. What Jesus is commanding us to do is to grow day by day more and more perfect in love, to grow deeper and wider in love until love fills our hearts completely and we are moved in this world and moved through this world only by love. The only perfection Jesus demands from us is the perfect love that he himself kindles in our hearts. The only perfection Methodists are interested in is perfection in love. In the movie Encanto, the family, the Madrigal family, they discover that the more they worry about the candle going out, the more they worry about the house falling apart, and the more they worry about losing their gifts, the more certain it becomes that that's exactly what's going to happen. It's only when they discover that the real miracle, the real magic of their family was never in the candle, it was never in the house, it was never in the gifts. The real miracle, the real magic in their family was the love that they had for one another that things begin to turn around for the magical family. When they put loving one another first, when they begin to make peace with each other, when they begin to forgive one another, when they begin to wrap their arms around even their least favorite siblings, then the candle begins to burn again. And then the house comes back together and then their magical, their supernatural gifts return. That's exactly the same way in the church. And we spend so much time worrying about how are we going to keep the lights on? How are we going to keep this building from falling apart? How are we going to get money in the plates? Are there going to be enough people to do all of the ministries of the church? And the more we worry about all of those things, the more certain it is that this place will fall apart. When we make the main thing the main thing, when we focus on loving one another as Jesus loves us, when we seek peace with each other, when we forgive each other, when we wrap our arms around even our least favorite siblings, then the candle keeps burning and the walls keep standing. And then we find that the church will have all the gifts it needs. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for those artists who tell the stories that help us see ourselves. God, we give you thanks for Jesus who takes off our shoulders the pressures that we place upon them. Jesus who only demands perfection and love. Jesus who pours out grace and mercy upon us so that we can make mistakes and keep on coming back to this place, so we can fall apart and keep on coming back to this place, so we can be lumpy and awkward and spiky and still know that we will have a place in this space. Jesus who speaks the truth to us even when we don't want to hear it. Now we pray that this place would be a joyful place, a place of safety and grace, a place of celebration and creativity. A place where we truly believe that every person has a gift to give and the world needs every one of those gifts. God, we pray that you would guide us, that you would hold us together. In Jesus we pray. Amen.